This morning we uh, we're going to do something which normally is done Christmas Eve, and that is we're going to talk about families and babies. Um, and I'd like you to turn to the very end of the Old Testament. The Old Testament ends with an account of the message of the prophet Malachi. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I made reference to this message, specifically to a couple of parts of it, where in this message, God is very intense in dealing with us about the matter of not keeping our vows to our wives. That when we make a vow to the woman that God has placed at the center of our hearts, that we're going to be faithful to her for life. That uh, when we cast her off after she's given us our children, we say, well, you know, she's getting old. Which is really the long and the short of what happens with trophy wives, right? Uh, When we do that, God hates it. And so here this prophet is at the very end of the Old Testament talking about divorce and saying, you are not to break your covenant to your wives. And then he goes on and he also speaks about uh, the matter of tithing and giving money. And he says, you're also not to rob me. But then at the very end of this prophet, the very end of the Old Testament, before we get to the Gospels where the coming of Jesus, finally he appears. What do we read? Well, we read this. The last two verses of chapter 4 of Malachi. I'm sorry, I should have told you the very end of that book. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 say this. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. What an interesting way. I don't think any of us would ever have come up with this way of ending the Old Testament and making the transition to the New Testament, would we? It's very strange. Why would God, at the very end of the Old Covenant, why would he make such a promise? And you can't just call it a promise. You also must admit that it's a a very sober warning because it ends with, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So in other words, God is very interested in the relationship of fathers and sons. But you also know that the word father is used for parents and for mothers. And that the word sons in the Old Testament is used for daughters. So God is very interested in the relationships of mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. So as we get to the end of the Old Testament, we have this statement, God is going to send a prophet, and that that prophet is going to do the work of what? Well, prophets do one thing, they preach. And he's going to call the people back to having a restoration of the relationship of the fathers and the mothers to their sons and daughters and a relationship of the sons and daughters to the fathers and mothers so that they and their children and their land are not struck with a curse. 
In other words, so that he will not break forth against us in judgment. How interesting the family relationships are speaking of them, speaking of restoration of the love that God intended between a father and his sons and a mother and her daughters and sons. How interesting. That's how the Old Testament ends. So then, when you get to the Gospels, and we could start at the beginning of any of the Gospels, but turn with me to Luke chapter 1. When we get to the beginning of the New Covenant, what is it that we see? Well, we see this very text is referred to. We see a reference to this very prophecy of Malachi. So open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 8. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was most likely a -a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence that any priest, there was something like, 20,000 or so of them, that any priest would have this honor. And it says, the whole multitude, verse 10, of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple, but when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant 
And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Now, first, let me start by saying, if you'll open commentaries on this text, you'll find a lot of them immediately dealing with the issue of whether or not we can count on the truthfulness of the statements here made. Because if you keep going in Luke chapter 1, you'll see that this chapter is... Uh, one of the main places of Scripture where it's very hard to be a modernist, to be uh, an Enlightenment woman or man, and to swallow it. It's just filled with God setting aside the laws of nature. And so a lot of commentators will say that we ought to be able to take the spiritual truths from this text and, and yet avoid the error of seeing uh, literal truth in places where there's a higher truth being spoken of. And anytime you see that, you should, you should check your wallet. You know, if people start talking about higher truths of Scripture and, and, and you know, that we shouldn't be too tight, too uh, punctilious, too uh, rigid in taking the truth of specifics, like, for instance, that she's barren and the Lord opens her womb, like, for instance, that Mary was a virgin and she got pregnant. Don't trust them. Uh, God's truth is of a fabric. And if you have trouble with a virgin being with child, you're going to have a whole lot more trouble with a God who sends his son to die on a cross and you're going to have a whole heap of trouble with that son after he's buried being raised from the dead. In other words, the entire account of Scripture of God's way of leading us to forgiveness for our sins is supernatural. It is a part of every fiber of it is uh, a setting aside by God of the way man thinks, the way man does things, uh, man's limitations, man's perspectives. It's all of God. And I want to focus on one particular aspect of this this morning, and that is this account that we have written by Luke, and Luke was a physician. Uh, it's very special to read Luke because, and you know, probably the vast majority of sermons preached at Christmas are preached from Luke because Luke, as a physician, has a special place in his heart for women and children. You'll see them appearing much more in the Gospel of Luke than any of the other Gospels. And here we have Luke's account uh, of one of these scenes where at the center are women and children. It's the scene of the announcement by an angel to the priest, Zechariah, that he and his wife are going to be blessed by the birth of his son. And here again we see that this birth is going to be a miraculous birth because both Elizabeth and Zechariah are, are far beyond their childbearing years. Now, it does seem to be a strange beginning for the good news about Jesus Christ, who's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one whose kingdom shall have no end. Why would God begin the account of the coming of the one who's to prepare the way for the Messiah, this John the Baptist? In fact, why would he begin the account of the King of kings and the Lord of lords with stories about pregnancy? and about babies. 
stop for a second because you might not trust it's weird. You've heard it so often. Every Christmas you see pictures, you go by on on the roads and you see people that have uh, manger scenes. And so we become used to it. We just take it for granted. But stop for a second and think. Uh, If you're a mover and shaker in this world, how do you think that you're going to get things done? Well, for movers and shakers, the proper way to set about any large venture is what? Well, you, you start out by writing a business plan, and then you appoint a board of directors and get some venture capital, and then you hire a, a PR firm and, and create some public relations buzz. Then maybe if, if you've done well so far, you issue an IPO, and then you retire on your profits. And... You're big. You've made it. You've, you've made an impression on the world. Maybe you don't have sites that large. Uh, maybe on a smaller scale, you write a book, you go on a lecture circuit, and you take some radio interviews. And if you can get other famous people to agree with you and to say that your, your work is a, is a worthwhile venture, then people will take note of you. And you may be able to ride the wave to fame and fortune. Now, think about the way you would go about some large venture, some large work, and be honest. How would you do it? Well, for some of us, the largest venture we're going to do is the venture of uh, finding some woman who will agree to marry us. And that might be a hard job for some of us. There might not be too much to commend ourselves to any particular woman. We certainly aren't rich yet. We're young. Uh, We can't have them fall in love with our children because most of us don't have children to show what beautiful children we'll have. Um, Maybe our parents aren't really fun. Maybe they're that guy in the movie of, uh, I forget the name of it, you know, the CIA dude. Um, You know, that didn't commend her as she was looking for a husband. And his behavior with the CIA didn't commend him. Um, you know, you think about the work of finding a husband or finding a wife, and you realize that there is a certain pattern that you're supposed to follow. You're supposed to show yourself fairly uh, socially sensitive. You're, you're, you're supposed, to, if you're the man, you're supposed to. It's very interesting that despite our supposed enlightenment about uh, gender relations, uh, studies show that men still pay and that women still expect men to pay, and that basically women still expect men to ask them. I know there are exceptions to the rule, but basically these things just keep on continuing. Um, This is a large job, and there are certain ways of accomplishing it. You need to put some money into the woman. Eventually, you need to buy her a ring. That probably is still required. (laughs) But let me ask you, do you pray and say, God, give me a wife? Now, I'll bet a number of you, despite being committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, have not thought to do that. I know you don't believe me, but I'm convinced a number of you haven't thought to do that. And that shows how completely brainwashed we are to be self-reliant, to be autonomous, and to believe that uh, the early bird gets the worm, which is another way of saying that you've got to work for anything you're going to get. But you know something, the account of God's method of salvation from beginning to end 
forces us to lay down in the dust and to say nothing, to keep our mouths shut and to recognize that it is all of God. What is God's way? Well, in Isaiah 55 it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, how does God go about his large venture of bringing salvation to mankind? Well, we see mentioned here twice in Luke chapter 1. We read one account. But there's another account later in the chapter. We see twice God does what? God places a a baby in a womb. And not one of you, not one of us, would ever think of beginning a large venture that way. And we would admit that if there's going to be a large venture, there's going to have to be a leader. But even if we acknowledged the leader who's at the center. We never bother telling the story of that leader's childhood usually. Maybe where he was educated. And we certainly would never bother talking about the womb of his mother. But I want you to see this as a theme. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 17. This is not a weird thing in the Gospels. But this is habitual with God, and it's a constant in his word, as God shows us how it is that he deals with man. In Genesis 17, we have the account of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And if you look down at verse 7 of chapter 17, you'll say, you'll see that God says this. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. And then skipping down to verse 15, it's not just hypothetical language, but it gets specific. Then God said to Abram, verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you, what? A son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And what's, what's Abram's response? Then Abram fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So that's the first illustration. God is going to make a people and mark them with his name. It's going to be a people more than the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. Abram is going to have a righteous progeny. He's going to have descendants that live and worship the true God. And it starts with Abram and his wife who are well beyond childbearing age. God says to them, and it's not just going to be future generations, you will have a son. And as a matter of fact, you and Sarah, 190, you're going to have a baby. That's the first example. The second example, turn with me to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30, beginning with verse 22. Here we have 
many years of childlessness. that Rachel had to endure. She watched her servant girl. She watched Leah. She watched many children being given to her husband Jacob. And then we read of the miraculous gift of baby Joseph to Rachel. Joseph was to save God's people from the great famine which was soon to rise over the Mideast. He was to work for God's people a great rescue, this time by the hand of the Egyptians. And so what happened? How did God carry out the beginning of this great work. It says in verses 22 to 24, then God, what? She had been sterile. Then God, what? God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and God opened her womb. And so she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph saying, may the Lord give me another son. Abram and Sarah, Jacob and Rachel. Third, turn with me to Judges chapter 13. When the sons of Israel were in bondage to the Philistines, they were wasting away under their oppression. God determined to rescue his people from their bondage and he began his major venture How? Well, by giving a baby son named Samson to Manoah and his barren wife. Judges 13, beginning with verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but what? You shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1 beginning with verse 8. Now this one is a little different. But what it has in common is it starts with a baby who is miraculously given life. This time not because his mother was barren, but this time because he was born under the sentence of death and God rescued him in a miraculous way. Exodus chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. 
The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives, what? Doesn't say they love God, does it? <laughs> now, they did love God. But the way the Bible says it is they feared God. And sometimes it's only the fear of God that will get you to do the right thing. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. The hospitals were going under. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. What a little sweet note. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile. The daughter of Pharaoh with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. Imagine how the modern man or woman in America would handle that. Yep, that's what babies do. They cry. Away with him. But what does it say about this woman? It says she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. <laughs> She's getting paid to nurse her baby. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. God is going to release the Israelites from the slavery of the Egyptians to the death and the destruction and the oppression of their slavery. What does he do? A baby. Fifth, turn to me, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1, please. At this time, again, the people of God were in need of a leader. A judge who would lead them, who would not pervert their worship and their daughters, but a judge who would be faithful to the Lord their God and who would bring them his blessing. And so God brought 
a deliverer to them in the form of a baby placed in the womb of a woman. Quite miraculously, baby Samuel was conceived and born to Elkanah and his beloved wife Hannah. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the, other, the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah. He would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. And then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And what? Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. How do we do things when we set out to do a large task? How do we do it? Well, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. When we undertake to accomplish a task, what we do is we marshal earthly forces whether they're banknotes, armies, or missiles. But God places a child in the womb of a mother. And by doing this, he makes it clear that salvation is of God and not of man. The Old Testament records for God's people the miraculous gift of life of Isaac and of Joseph and of Moses and of Samson and of Samuel. And the New Testament begins with the account of God's miraculous gift of life to John the Baptist and to Jesus.
But you know, there's more here. We're not only told that God places a baby in the womb of a mother, but we're also told something very significant about that baby in the womb. Look back with me at Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 14, which we already read. But I want to note a very short statement in verse 14 of our scripture text. As the angel Gabriel is speaking to Zacharias about this son that will miraculously be given to him and to his wife, he says this to Zacharias. He says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and what? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now, if you have a New International Version, you'll read that it doesn't say that there. It says in the New International Version that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And in our culture today, we know that there's a huge difference between saying that a child is filled by the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb or that he is filled by the Holy Spirit from birth. Huge difference. Well, the Greek here is the word koilia. And it's the word that's consistently translated in the King James Version, bowels, is in where it speaks of the bowels of God's mercy. And without having you turn there, I want you to listen to just a few places where this Greek word is used in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, a little later in chapter 1, verse 41, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped, what? In her womb, in her coils, coilia, inside of her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 42, She cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your, what? Coilia, of your of your." Verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb. And then chapter 2, verse 21, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the koilia, in the womb. And then in Luke 11:27, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the what? The coily. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. If you go to the Old Testament, they took the Old Testament in Hebrew and they translated it into Greek. And they used this same word, koilia, in a number of places in their translation. So this shows the meaning at the time. It says in Judges 13, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God. What? From the koilia, from the womb. In Judges 16, I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Psalm 22, 9, Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Not from birth. In Isaiah 49.5, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Jeremiah 1.5, 
This is the call of the prophet Jeremiah. And it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. In the womb, born. Okay? Very, very clear. So the consistent theme of these passages from Scripture is that God has set apart these men from their mother's wombs. In fact, even before conception, God has ordained their work, and while they are still in the guts of their mother, literally, He fills them with His Spirit, empowering them for the work He has predestined them to do. Now, so far, we're all on board, and it's very positive. But let me give you another example that isn't as positive. And that's found in the book of Romans, chapter 9, where it is talking about the sovereign choice of God over souls. And in Romans, chapter 9, beginning with the last half of verse 10, we read this. Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born, in other words, when they were yet in their mother's womb, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Do you understand what's going on here? God is showing that his work of sovereign choice, his work of anointing, his work of filling the Holy Spirit, or uh, filling a, 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 a child in the womb with the Holy Spirit, and his work of rejection, that these things are carried out by him in the womb of a woman. Now, I have two questions in closing, both of which have very, very strong uh, application to our lives. The first question is this. If God were to want to find a way of impressing upon us that aside from him we can do nothing, if he were to want to find a way to teach us that it is all of him and not of us, if there were a way that God wanted to impress upon us his sovereign choice, his absolute omnipotent power, if God were want to tell you that you must seek everything from him, if God were to want to impress upon a woman that she, when she has done all, she must then seek everything from God for the child that she loves. If God were to want to impress upon a people lost in slavery and bondage that there's nothing they can do to break the bondage but seek their liberty from God. Can you think of a way that God could make that more of an impression on your mind than having the beginning of all these accounts of liberation of one sort or another start with someone who either is completely hopelessly sterile or as it says in Hebrews about Abram, he was as good as dead. And we all know what that meant. Okay? Can you think of a way that God could impress you more with His sovereignty and power than by showing you time after time after time that what He does is He takes a cold and sterile womb and a man who's as good as dead and He has them come together and get pregnant. And then while that baby's still in the womb, not being read the Bible with family devotions, but still in the womb, that child is filled with the Holy Spirit and everything's set. It's all over. The only thing that's left is for someone to write the history. How could God make more of an impression upon us of His sovereignty? of His authority, of His power. How can He make more of an impression upon us that man proposes, but God disposes? 
that the heart of the king is like a river in the hands of God. Could he have made it clear that he's made it in every single one of these accounts? If you want to write it in a way that makes it clear, if you want to come up with a story that's clear, I challenge you to do it. You won't be able to do it. It couldn't be done more clearly than this. That's the first thing. And it has direct application to you in that this means that you are to seek everything from God. Does not mean that you're not to pray. Notice that little note in the middle of the account where it says that Zechariah's prayers have been heard. <laughs> but nobody in the right mind thinks that Zechariah was the agent but his prayers were heard. Yes, you still train your children. You tell your children that the church needs godly mothers and fathers to raise godly children. But then you pray over them at night, laying your hands on their heads, and you call down the power of God on your children. And if you're pregnant, you take your hands and you put them on your stomach and you pray for the children in your womb that they'll be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Okay? I mean, this is like a no-brainer, right? God's made his point, and if we don't get it, we're fools. Now, that's the first point. God's sovereign, and if you don't get it, it's because you won't get it. It's not because you can't get it or he hasn't been clear. All right, the second thing is, can you think of a way that God could have more impressed upon us the dignity of the womb and the unborn child? Well, what would God have to write down in the Bible to make us see that the womb of a woman is a place of the greatest dignity than to tell us that while the child is in the womb, he's bounding and thumping and jumping in the praise of his Messiah who is in his presence. Which is what John the Baptist did when he first ran into pregnant Mary and there was his Savior in her belly, her coilia. Or think of the dignity of the mothers who were carrying in their in their wounds, these two men and men, whoo, they were men. <laughs> Don't think that they were androgynous like the man formerly called Prince. These were men. And they were in the womb of a woman and it was a dignity for them to be carried in the womb of a woman. <laughs> they weren't women while they were in the womb and then became men out of the womb. This is what God intends. He intends women's wombs to carry these, these godly men and he fills them with the Holy Spirit while they're in there and they're, they're sloshing around in their mother's bellies. And this is God's gift to us. And can you say anything more dignified than both of these men, you know, spent nine months in their mother's womb? Do you think God couldn't have announced the coming of his son with Gabriel? Do you think he couldn't have sent Gabriel out into the wilderness to proclaim the coming of the Messiah? Do you think he couldn't have used Gabriel to preach a revival mission? But no, he took a woman and he took a child in her, in her womb and he had that child go through nine months in there kicking against his mother's belly. And, and, and the father felt it and had joy as he felt it. And then that child was born through the birth canal like every other person has been born. And then that child was circumcised. And then that child nursed at his mother's breast. And God was delighted. And so what does this tell us? What does this tell us today? Are we heartless? Have we really been reduced to what 
uh, America wants to reduce us to consuming machines that consume sex without fertility. You understand what I'm saying? Consuming machines that consume sex without fertility, and if by accident a child comes, we go kill it. And you feel revulsion. You ought to feel revulsion. You ought to be like righteous Lot, who gnashed his teeth at the wickedness that surrounded him in Sodom and Gomorrah. People, it's not people out there that need to hear this, it's us. We're the ones that have to commit ourselves to seeing the story of Christmas. This is the Christmas story. I'm not making it up. (laughs) This is pregnant bellies and nursing breasts and marital intimacy. And out of it, God creates the redemption of every single person who turns to Christ in faith. That's why it's dignified to be a woman. That's why it's dignified to have intimacy in marriage. That's why it's dignified to love your sons and daughters as a mother and a father. That's why in our church, when we see a woman who's carrying a child in her belly, we think of our Lord and we honor her. We don't think that she's wasting her life for a few years but soon can get back to her real job. We honor her. And if a woman doesn't have a child, we don't think that this is a choice that she's made and is powerless with and that we ought to never make reference to it. We try to deal tenderly with her because we know that it's likely that her heart is grieving as every single one of these women grieved until God gave them the child that they wanted. If you think that I'm a Neanderthal man because of what I just said, I pity you. I'm just normal. I'm just real boringly normal throughout human history. And I praise God for my wife. (laughs) I love my children. And that's what God wants me to do. And I know you don't love my children. That's okay doesn't say he'll turn their grandfather's hearts to the grandchildren or, you know, the other people in the church, although sometimes he makes up for lost territory that way. But I'm supposed to love my son, Taylor, and my daughter, Hannah, and all the rest of my children. And they're supposed to love me, and that's the work of God. So I encourage you, two lessons this morning. Number one, God's sovereign. God made it very clear in every one of these stories he'll do what he's going to do and he'll start it in the womb and he'll do it in such a way that nobody can think it's because the parents had their act together. And number two, what's in the womb of a woman is a precious thing. In fact, the womb of a woman is a precious thing. And man, let's honor it among the people of God. Let's honor women. Let's treat women tenderly. Let's... Never strike them in anger. Let's hold the doors for them. Let's love them. Let's pray.